Welcome to Strength for Today's Pastor, conversations with current senior pastors and leaders which will strengthen and help you in your pastoral ministry. And now, here's your host, Bill Holdridge of Poyman Ministries. Welcome to Strength for Today's Pastor. Today we're going to be continuing with our six-part series, The Distinctives of Acts Chapter 2 which are the six distinctives that guide our ministries. This is podcast number 68 of this series. So we've already looked at the first four of these distinctives in our past podcasts, and this is part five. And it comes from, of course, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so the breaking of bread is the subject this morning on today's podcast. And joining us today to share ideas about what the breaking of bread looked like in the early church, why it's important today in any church, are pastors Jeremy Foster and Tim Brown. Jeremy Foster received Jesus at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in 1993, and he served in various Calvary chapels in California and then in New Jersey, and then he moved to Europe to Vita, Hungary, and he served there at the Calvary Chapel Bible College for almost 10 years. And it was during that time that the Lord called Jeremy to come to Northwest Arkansas to pastor Calvary Chapel in the Ozarks of January 2014. A little side note, Pastor Jeremy is also the drum instructor for the Rogers High School Marching Band Program. <laughs> and when I read that, Jeremy, I thought, all we need is a drummer. And then we're <laughs> praying for a good football team to go along with the drum and bugle corps and the marching band. <laughs> that would be One wonderful. thing at a time. One thing at a time. That's right. But uh, welcome to the program, Jeremy. Good to have you. Good to be here. Thank you, sir. And then Tim Brown. Tim is a friend, and we've known each other for many years. And Tim had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ on January 3rd, 1972. He's been married to his wife, Fran, since August of 1976. Three children, eight grandchildren, and some kind of ministry since 1973. And he planted Calvary Chapel of Fremont, his present church, in 1997. And like I said, he's a friend, but he's a wise counselor. God has given Tim the ability and the insight to answer complex issues with simple-to-understand responses. So welcome, Tim. Glad to have you also on board today. Good to be here with you and Jeremy, Bill. Blessings on you. Amen. Well, let's dive into the discussion. We're going to be talking about the breaking of bread, and we're separating this out as a separate distinctive because that's what Acts 2.42 does for us. And it tells us that they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. So we need to talk about what that actually means and how that actually looks in church life today. So that's the very first and most obvious question. What's meant by the phrase breaking of bread? Well, it's a great question, you know, as you think about it. And here's the funny thing. The more you think about it, the more difficult <laughs> it almost is to interpret it. Uh, I was thinking about this so much, and um, I'm sure we'll get to the different ins and outs of what this might be. But I was thinking about it kind of, and I can't help to put sports analogies on things. When there's the discussion of, you know, who's the greatest player and who's your on your Mount Rushmore 
of, you know, pick your, your different sport. They talk about all the numbers and all the statistics, but then there's always this kind of personal preference that people have. And it's like the eye test, like just watching them play. Who do you think that is? And for me, even, you know, before we get to all the ins and outs of the behind the scenes stuff of all this, just the simple, the breaking of the bread, the basic eye test of what do you think it is? It just seems to be the Lord's table communion, that reminder that he put in place for us, that he instituted for us, that great tradition he established to remember the cross. So it's the the breaking of bread. It's the the bread and the cup of of communion. Just that's my first kind of initial thoughts on it. Okay. Thank you. Tim. Yeah, I grew up in the Christian Church, Church of Christ, and we would have uh, communion every week. And it was exactly what Jeremy said. If the eye test is connected to experience, then that was my experience. There was nothing of the agape, nothing of the love feast. But when I look at scripture, you know, I, I think the eye test is important. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the head test uh, kind of maybe uh, is the, uh, the end all, meaning as you, as you think through it and look at it, in Luke 24, 35, that same phrase is used, the breaking of bread, uh, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. Now, obviously, that wasn't the Lord's Supper. That wasn't the Eucharist. That They were eating a meal uh, together. And that same phrase is used in Acts 2.42. And so I think if you look at the Lord's Supper itself, it was instituted in the context of a larger meal, whether it was the Seder or not, uh, if it was the third cup that Jesus was blessing or not. Um, that could be up for grabs, I think. But the Lord's Supper was definitely instituted within the context of a larger meaning. So I think the historical roots uh, do join together the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is a reference to both at the very beginning of church history. It's the Lord's Supper in the context of a larger meal. I liked what you said, Bill, about they were continually breaking bread uh, from house to house. And I thought, well, that certainly uh, describes uh, what's been called calorie chapel, right? <laughs> the constant breaking of bread and eating, eating together. So uh, historically, they've been, we're at the beginning of the, the birth of the church. The, the Lord's Supper was in the context of a larger supper, though I certainly agree with uh, uh, Jeremy that today it's come down just to the Lord's Supper itself, just to the bread and the cup. You made me laugh with your reference to Calorie Chapel. I think that came from Gail Irwin. It did. <laughs> but, I, you know, in traveling around the country, visiting different Calvary chapels, it's been really fun to watch how the, the common meal, the agape feast, is very different in terms of the offerings of food choices <laughs> at each place. Some places are high-calorie, high-carb with no reference at all to vegetables, fruit, or anything really that's remotely uh, seeming to be healthy. And then others' uh, places are very conscious about all those kinds of things. It's kind of funny. Well, and just talking about what you're, what you're, what you're saying here, guys, uh, maybe if we, we could assume that maybe the Holy Spirit was 
intentionally being ambiguous here so that we could ferret out some meaning and application. I don't know if that's the case at all, but what's the best way to handle this? It maybe is a, a both and rather than an either or. What do you think? Uh, well, I wouldn't disagree with that for sure. I mean, that's the fun part of, is it deliberately left open for us? Uh, what's fascinating to me, especially as we think about this, specifically in terms of what might it be, you know, what's the one of the, the hallmarks of basic Bible study, almost Bible study 101, don't be dogmatic where the scriptures are not. And there's a couple of places in, in terms of, you know, church tradition, church practice, and I use that word specifically, tradition, things that are instituted by the Lord himself that we're to apply. I mean, it's baptism, and then, of course, it's 1 Corinthians 11. It's communion. So we know that communion is an important element, and yet all these other references that seem to uh, imply the obvious, the church got together they literally broke bread, shared meals together. So the, the either and, uh, you know, it, it definitely seems to be both were applied and practiced by the early church. Tim? Yeah, I think that what might have uh, historical ambiguity, to me there's no theological ambiguity, and we'll get into that uh, in the next couple of questions. But what's historically ambiguous to us was not to the early church. They had no question as to what it meant and what the practice was. And yet very early in the history of the church, there was a separation between the love feast and the, the, the breaking of the bread, between the love feast and the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. In uh, 100 AD with the Didache, there was uh, the Lord's Supper and the love feast are mentioned together, Ignatius in AD 110 mentions them together also but they're very quickly after that became a separation between the Lord's Supper and uh, communion in fact uh, in my uh, preparation for this I found that in the Council of Laodicea the people were prohibited from taking home the elements of communion and then uh, in the uh, Second Council of Orleans in 541 uh, they prohibited eating at the church and they prohibited communion at the house. And so there's a very definite separation in church history between the love feast and the, the Lord's Supper. And, you know, there in First Corinthians 11, even though they had the love feast, there were some moral objections raised to it because some people uh, got drunk there. Uh, some people um, acted unbecomingly at the Lord's Supper. You could look at practical reasons, too, as the church moved from homes to the larger venues of the churches that possibly became uh, not as pragmatic to join the two together. Possibly theological reasons, because the Lord's Supper grew out of uh, the Seder meal of the Jews, and there was quite an anti-Jewish mindset in the church fathers early in the uh, church history, that could have helped precipitate a, a separation also. And maybe, too, uh, an ecclesiastical reason as the clergy grew in importance, uh, maybe they wanted to separate that uh, privilege and the ordinance and the sacrament uh, to themselves solely and not put it in the hands of the people. But anyway, I think if you look at church history, the meal 
is related to the Lord's Supper, but it's not required. In fact, among some of the Christian denominations today that have revived the Agape Feast, uh, they don't include the Lord's Supper in it. It's for fellowship, it's for goodwill, it's for benevolence, but it doesn't include the Lord's Supper. So I think uh, theologically, uh, historically there has been a separation between the two, and I think theologically we can make a separation. Because when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was just talking about communion. And so the communion is commanded, but the meal wasn't. So I, I don't think theologically there's a problem with separating the two. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, as, then let's talk about each of these elements then of the possibility of the both and and. Let's talk about communion then, also known as the Lord's Supper. What does that look like in theology and in practice, do you think? Tim, you've, you've done a little bit more research on this, and I'm definitely the young pup in the conversation. So, well, why don't you start this part of the conversation? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think at the beginning of church history, it was both and, but it's come out now to be either or. Um, for me, the, the, the breaking of, of the bread, I, I got off on, on the wrong foot in my Christian experience because, again, I grew up in the uh, Christian church, Church of Christ. And to me, the, the most dreaded time of the week was the Lord's Supper, uh, especially as I got into my teenage years because I would stay out very late on Saturday evening, but I, I had to go to church on Sunday mornings. And uh, we had a table up front of the church. I think all of us have seen one like it with the words etched into it, uh, do this in remembrance of me. And on that table was the, the bread and the, and the juice. And uh, there was an elder on either side of the table. And both elders would pray before we handed out communion. And I just got to the point where I believe this is the only time of the week these guys prayed because each of them droned on and on and on. <laughs> and Bill, that last podcast we did about, uh, you mentioned uh, that pastor who said, you know, the first minute you're praying, I'm praying with you. And then the second minute I'm praying for you. Then the third minute I'm praying against you. <laughs> Boy, I was praying against these guys. And I was, we, we all had to stand during these prayers. And I was just kind of swaying at my seat and going, come on, dude, shut up, shut up. <laughs> and so uh, it seems so spiritually thin our practice of it it was just passed and eaten and then we went on to something else it was it wasn't in my in my thinking in my opinion and maybe everybody around me would disagree that was in the service but to me it just seemed so pro forma it seemed so ritualistic and um just not it just wasn't life-giving now again everybody around me could have said it was life-giving for me it wasn't so when i got into the ministry the lord's supper was something i really struggled with and i thought uh, at first i just did it quarterly with the people and then i i felt guilty and so we started doing it monthly but now we do it every week we do communion at the end of the sermon i go down and i uh will break the bread and talk about the bread talk about the cup We'll have two songs of worship during communion. 
at which time the elders are stationed at the various communion stations and one of the sisters in the church. And we just tell people, if you want prayer, come on up and um, just tell us what you need from Jesus and we'll pray for you. And so the lights go down low and we're worshiping and people are coming forward to receive the communion elements. And sometimes I just, myself and the elders just stand there and no one comes from prayer. Sometimes each of us have two or three people that just kind of, kind of line up waiting for prayer. Um, I guess uh, I, I'm not sure why it's so uneven, but sometimes it's uh, barren. Sometimes it's so full and so rich in terms of people coming for prayer. But I've, I've developed a, a theology of the Lord's Supper and communion, which for me now, makes it a very rich time. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And, you know, when Jesus said, this is my body, those are the four most fought over words in theology in the last 2,000 years. Those those four words. And the question that everyone has wrestled with is, is the true flesh and blood of Christ physically present in the bread and in the wine? Is the true flesh and blood of Christ physically present? Well, I grew up in a Christian church, and we had this Zwinglian view that the, the true flesh and blood of Christ is not physically present. It does not need to be physically present. Uh, we have a memorial view of the Lord's Supper, and I think probably the bulk of evangelicalism has some form of uh, a Zwinglian approach to communion. But as I looked at it, the way that it was practiced, the way I was growing up, it was so so spiritually thin. It was so cerebral. It was so one-dimensional. It was almost like a creedal affirmation as we took it. Yes, I believe Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. It was a confession of faith, if you would. But it wasn't a communion with God. Now, I've talked to men, uh, different pastors and whatnot, about the whole celebration and observance of the Lord's Supper being in remembrance of Jesus. And they've replied to me, basically, that that sounds so cerebral, so spiritually thin. Again, it's, it's a confession of a creed and not necessarily a communion with the person. And so many people hear that word remembrance and just relegate it to a mental, a mental activity that really doesn't reach the core of who I am. But the way that I look at it, remembrance and memory is a very, very rich, theologically and spiritually, very, very theologically and spiritually rich. I think of memory as a key that opens the doors to rooms rich with treasure and meaning. Now, some people demean Memory is being, again, one, so dimensional, one-dimensional and spiritually thin. And I want to be careful here, but let, let me do a little thought experience here with you. Think back to the time. Remember when, as a junior in high school, you were with that girl in the back of the house and you begin to kiss. And everyone will say, stop, stop, stop right there. I don't want to go there. Well, why don't you want to go there? Because that memory it begins to spark feelings and, and passions. It begins to, to, to take you into a mood and into a place that is not healthy to be, obviously, 
for a believer. But look at the power of just that one memory. We're to do this in remembrance of Jesus. What I think about, when I, when I was back, Fran and I, we almost went overseas with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And we got married in Eugene, Oregon. And then for our honeymoon, we drove to Duncanville, Texas, to the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which is the academic arm of Wycliffe Bible Translators. And uh, we, we continued our linguistics uh, education. Back there, we were just newly married. We were able to buy car insurance month by month. It was $20 a month for uh, car insurance. Well, it was coming up that my car insurance was due that day. And we were, we were just dirt poor. We had no money whatsoever. We were uh, back in Texas. Our families were in uh, Oregon and California. And um, we, we had nowhere to turn. And we didn't want to drive our car without insurance. We didn't want to be irresponsible that way. Uh, but that day I got a letter in the mail from a couple that I had met at another Wycliffe training program. And this couple had kids. And if we were dirt poor, they were mud poor. I mean, they, they just didn't have any money. Uh, so I opened the envelope <laughs> and there was a letter there. Uh, but in, in tucked into the letter was a $20 bill. And my heart just soared. And I think, I thought, thank you, Jesus. You are my provider. You always come through for me. And, and Bill, even remembering that from, 43 years ago now my heart just soars and i just i just want to worship jesus for for his provision for me i remember that it's like a picture you know you take a picture of your family out of your wallet or now it's on your phone but that picture of your wife you want to show people here's my wife here's my kids here's my grandkids because that picture evokes memories that just aren't mental pictures of them it stirs your heart you know, and your heart is drawn towards them. And there's so, there's such a rich theology of remembrance in the Old Testament. Psalm 77 and 78 talk about remembering the good things of God. So uh, again, for me, uh, there's such a, a, a rich texture of remembrance. And as I remember Jesus at, at, at the Lord's Supper, it is life giving. To me, Jesus is touching my soul. I'm touching his soul. And it's person-to-person encounter that is unlocked by the key of memory. Because that bread and that juice, that's the picture. That's the picture of my Lord, my God. And that stirs my heart. And I, I think that people touch something of that as they make their way forward for communion. I have more to say, but Jeremy, uh, go ahead. Well, I could sit and enjoy listening to, <laughs> to you all day on this. Sir. It's great stuff. Um, I, I, I guess I'll piggyback on that idea because what's amazing to me about it, and amazing really, because the conversation then is, I mean, it's the scriptures, and it's the totality of what our salvation is and we say this so often it's you know such a great term in evangelism even we always say it's not about religion it's about relationship and so this 
experiential part, which, you know, so much of our Protestantism, especially solid biblical Protestantism, would want to kind of poo-poo any idea of experience. But it's meant to be. And I think even just the simplicity, almost like this, this visceral, poignant element of the elements that you're, you're taking a piece of bread and you're chewing it. it. It's not just like two bites and you swallow it. You know, it takes a moment to process it. And as you're processing that, even physically, yeah, that, that mental part and your heart behind it and your memories, you're thinking about this. He wanted us to think about this. And even, you know, the cup, whether that's wine, that's juice, as you're, you're tasting it, it's not water, which is tasteless. It's just you drink water and you're done. But the juice, the cup, it stays on your tongue. It remains there. It's this poignant reminder of what he's done. So, you know, the whole of scripture wants us to, here's a fascinating little bit of a, a side note just to that, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're meant to experience him. And so really the danger of these things, and come back to this, Tim, you know, is that it's not supposed to be solely textbook. We need to have our minds involved. If we don't, then it's exclusively experience, and that's wildly dangerous. So if there's no biblical foundation behind it, we're in big trouble. For me growing up, uh, I grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, so we understood, oh no, this is the body of Jesus, the transubstantiation that every week, every mass, it's the miracle that this wafer and this cup of wine literally becomes his body and his blood. Of course, I don't believe that now because he died once for our sins, so he's not repeatedly crucified every Sunday or whenever communion celebrated. So there's the experience part. And I think about it this way, even the book of Psalms is the biggest book of the Bible. And I think it's meant to be that as David and the other psalmists, they, they talked about their experiences. They talked about how they felt with the Lord. And so communion in that element of the breaking of the bread, it's meant to be experienced. And again, I'll use this word specifically, the tradition of it. We don't like that word very much in our Protestantism, but it's a tradition that's instituted by Jesus himself. He wanted us to take the time to remember him. And again, not simply in a theological manner, though that must be in place but to remember that he died on the cross for my sins. I want to come back to that part later too, because it's not supposed to be only, you know, this solemn downcast kind of an event, but we're to remember these things. We're to think upon these things, experience what it is that in to some degree, this reminder of what he did for us. Yeah. I think that, word experience is so important uh david said of the lord uh the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he restores my soul my soul is my mind and my will and my emotions with my mind i think with my emotions i feel and desire 
and with my will, I choose and decide. And these are the three dimensions of my soul. And, and the Lord restores all of these. Uh, he restores my thinking. He restores me to right desire. He restores me to right choosing and, and uh, deciding. And I think all of these factors are alive in the supper. As I remember him, there's my mind. Uh, my emotions are, are stirred. And then there's that um, capacity or that thing inside me. I don't know what to call it. Uh, that says, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be on this path. And again, memory is, is so, remembrance is so rich and so powerful. You know, remembrance can lead to complaint. Uh, the Israelites, they complained to Moses when they remembered the leeks and the onions and the garlic, you know, of, uh, of Egypt. That, that memory triggered, uh, that experience that they had in Egypt. The Israelites were accused of not remembering God's mighty acts. And the implication is, had they remembered God's mighty acts, they wouldn't have fallen into sin and complaint and idolatry. Remembrance can keep you on the path. David says there of, of the Lord in Psalm 25, he says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. And if God had remembered David's sins, he would have acted in one way. Had he not remembered David's sins, he would have acted in another way. And so remembrance is a very, very powerful spiritual tool to bring the soul into uh, fellowship and communion with Christ. What you gentlemen are describing is such a rich description. Thank you so much for that discussion because... It makes communion alive to us and not this rote experience or traditional kind of an experience. Thank you for that. Well, we've been spending time with Tim Brown and Jeremy Foster talking about the idea of breaking bread. But right now we're going to take a short break and we will be back with you real soon. You've been listening to Strength for Today's Pastor. Appointment Ministries appreciates your participation and prayers. If you'd like to help financially support this podcast, you can go to our website at appointmentministries.com forward slash donate. Thank you. Okay, so we've been talking about the breaking of bread together with Jeremy Foster and Tim Brown. And we unpacked, or Tim and Jeremy unpacked the idea of what it meant to take the Lord's Supper, what does that mean theologically, experientially? Now we move to the other part of the both-and equation here that is possible, and that is agape feasts. What did agape feasts look like in theology and in practice, and how can we uh, maybe even utilize that idea today? Yeah, that's such a great question. The, the, how to utilize that today, you know, with, with the focus here on Acts 2.42, as they continued steadfastly, partially, and the, you know, first and foremost, they continued in fellowship. They were together. And there's something interesting about that idea of being together because it incorporates all of it, the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. They were together for those things. They got together and prayed. They got together and they broke bread together. Of course, down in verse 46, as you guys have already discussed, they did this from house to house. 
And it says they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They were together. And even just the, the aspect of, of fellowship, fellowship is almost, the, and I know you've already discussed this and you know, the previous podcasts and whatnot, but there's almost like at least a twofold element of that because there's the, the action, the activity of fellowship where you're together, you're doing things together like they were there in the early church. But there's also this element of fellowship where it's like this camaraderie where you just have an understanding, two people with kind of a, a shared background or a shared experience and a crowd of people can, you know, see each other across the room, make eye contact and just have like a knowing look. Yeah, we, we've experienced what everyone else is simply discussing. So there's this, this fellowship. And so incorporated in the fellowship, they got together and they had meals together. So here in 2020, kind of what does that look like? One of the things that I love to see, I'll say it this way, kind of a funny way, I like to see the things that that don't make it into the church bulletin, that are not on the church calendar. You know, this family is getting together with this family and this group of people that get together every Sunday after service, and they go and break bread together, and they discuss the sermon, they discuss how their lives are doing. They are truly fellowshipping around that beautiful simplicity of, you know, like a family meal, just sitting down. How's your day? How's your week? How are you doing? And then we just in practice here at our church, and, you know, Bill, you mentioned this uh, earlier, I think, where it's, it's <laughs> funny to see this in, in different parts of the country. Rogers, Arkansas, and Northwest Arkansas is technically the South. I mean, we're closer to Tulsa than we are to Little Rock, so it's got more of a Midwest flavor and feel but yeah our potlucks are definitely uh <laughs> southern in in flavor and feel and we do this is kind of funny but we have more of a scheduled time of potluck than we actually do for communion on sundays um part of that and this will take take us back to the previous part of the conversation Part of that is because it's such the potluck, us getting together. We do this on Wednesday evenings, six o'clock before our midweek Bible study, and people bring in different foods. If you don't have anything to bring, man, just come. And I know there's some people that they're not doing so hot, and just a free meal is good for them. And there's a lot of people that don't have time to make something, and so just a free meal is so helpful and a great way to bless you know, our church community. But it's one of my favorite times on our church calendar just to be in the building, different groups of people that would probably not even be chit-chatting that are now sitting around a table or tables and sharing food together. And so we make sure that's a kind of a priority. Uh, back to the, just real quick on the, the topic of communion. We don't do that every month. We don't do that every week. Part of it for me is kind of what Tim was talking about where I don't want it to become just this common uh, occurrence that you kind of lose sight of why we even do it. So I almost allow some tension in the, in the calendar. It might be six weeks. It might be seven weeks because I don't want it to become commonplace. But the potluck, and we schedule that every month, and it's on Wednesdays. And so in terms of what the love feast looked like, what it looks like now for us in practice, we do a weekly potluck and, and love having it. 
Um, I was not, not put off by the question, but I think my experience, well, I, I have the experience that, that, that Jeremy has. I've never approached this stuff with the language of agape feast, uh, love feast. I've, I've, I've never, uh, called it that. They've been potlucks. Someone says there's no luck in the Christian life, so it's pot blessing, whatever, you know, it's this, it's this meal, uh, that we share. And I, I think, you know, we, we talked historically about the, the agape feast and the Lord's Supper being historically connected. Uh, and then it became historically separated. But I think there is a theological connection that has lasted through 2,000 years of church history. And here's why. And I won't read the whole passage, but this is from 1 Corinthians 10 verses 16 and following. I'll just read the first verse, verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Uh, I'll read the next verse too. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So, what the trajectory that I read here in Paul is that we eat of, of, of Jesus. We eat of that which is the picture of his body. And in doing that, we become one body. We eat of the same loaf. We become the same loaf. And so there is this wonderful connection theologically, spiritually, between partaking of Christ and becoming one as the body of Christ. I think what Jeremy described there was just the glorious oneness and, and the beauty of love between uh, the members that we're sharing, as most of you know, is the word koinonia. We have a koinonia in the blood of Jesus. We participate in the blood and in the body of Christ. It, it's a participation in what it was meant to accomplish, not only atonement, and forgiveness but to bring about unity because we're all eating of the same meal and we know that in um, uh, Eastern hospitality when you ate a meal a, a meal uh, together there were certain rules of hospitality we're now responsible for one another we have a relationship with one another and we are to guard and protect and care for one another and this is part of what communion is meant to um, accomplish this is the, one of the purposes and hopefully the result of it and the result then you know we, we talk about the Lord's Supper growing out of that first meal that Jesus celebrated with his uh, guys there in the upper room um, so the, the the feast ends with uh, the Lord's Supper but it's almost here in the First Corinthians 10 passage where the, the Lord's Supper eventuates into the, just the feast of oneness and of unity and of uh, uh, being one bread and one loaf in Jesus Christ and having those covenant relationship and those covenant responsibilities with one another. Mm, summed up very well. This whole subject is, is so wonderful. And I know that uh, the idea in the text of Acts 2.42 is they did indeed 
devote themselves continually to these four things, and the breaking of bread was one of those four things, but maybe there is an intentional ambiguity of the Holy Spirit in the sense that he gives us room and freedom to apply this in our local contexts, in our fellowships, in, in a lot of different ways. For example, in pastoring in Monterey, I had learned and grown up in my early years at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in one of the home groups. I had learned about the idea of an agape feast. And so we had those regularly at Calvary Monterey, and they, they were potlucks, common meals, uh, but they were more than that. They were events. They lasted for a while, and it was so natural for us to exchange testimonies, to pray for one another, to have a wonderful meal together, to worship together, and then remember the Lord in his death and his burial and his res- resurrection through communion. And all of that happened in, in a three, three and a half hour period of time. We did that regularly. They were rich. But in other contexts, it's not so possible. Maybe what Jeremy's talking about, the small group, the families that do this after Sunday morning service, in other contexts, perhaps in the life groups that a church hosts, and are in different people's homes, they can do this. But the fact is that they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so whatever that means, that's something that's important for us to do. Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely, 100%. Okay, well, I so appreciate this discussion with you two, and it's been so helpful. And I think that uh, the Lord is encouraging us. He certainly encouraged me today in the area of communion, in the area of the oneness and the otherness of the body of Christ in our gatherings together. So now is your time, each of you. You have an opportunity to share for a minute or two a specific word of encouragement to the pastors that will be listening to this podcast and go. <laughs> Start the clock, right? Um, You know, for me, as I mentioned, growing up in the Catholic uh, tradition, there's a word that was used during the communion part of Mass that's never really been adopted into the Protestant side of things. And I'm not sure why, but it's one of those, probably the only element of my Catholicism as a kid that kind of stayed with me. And they're really good at using the word, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier where there, there does need to be, and as, as Pastor Tim was talking about, you know, that remembrance and that reminder of what Jesus did for us, thinking about that, I don't believe that Jesus intended the, the supper, the communion time to be exclusively think about all your sins, think about all the things you've done. I don't mm-hmm. think it's that. I think it needs to be this celebration of, in fact, I mean, it's so funny, right? That we just, and we use this word specifically again, we just celebrated Good Friday not too long ago. And we call it Good Friday because we know it's good. And so communion is good. It's the greatest reminder there could be. And so uh, like with Tim, we, we try to make sure that worship is incorporated in that part of our service. We celebrate what Jesus has done. And in so many ways, I think the sort of the glory of what our little family, our little tribe of churches, as we call ourselves Calvary Chapel, we should always be pointing people to Calvary, 
always pointing people to the cross. I remember my first semester at Bible college, Pastor John Corson came in and did a three-hour lecture on 1 Corinthians 2-2, like one verse, and he just spent three hours kind of discussing it. It's, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that stuck with me for all these years, and especially, again, for what we are, Calvary. Hopefully, we're regularly, steadfastly, hopefully, we're devoted to telling people about what Jesus has done. So, in other words, if communion is the only time we mention the cross, we've missed something. It's a wonderful time of celebration, of remembrance of what he's done, of contemplation, of thinking through what it means that he no longer holds our sins against us. There's so much more to that part of the conversation, but we celebrate these things. So that's always been important to me to really celebrate it. Yes, there's this gravity to it, but there should be this height of glory for what Jesus willingly did for us. Amen. Good word. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, I think my word would be to just encourage you pastors to revisit your theology of communion. Remembrance isn't a doorway into a data bank that holds a lot of information. Uh, remembrance in the, and Jesus was a Hebrew. He spoke as a Hebrew there in the upper room. And as you look at the Hebrew concept of the term remembrance, it's not a doorway to a data bank. It's a doorway to communion. And that the Lord's Supper, I think, celebrated in, in the correct way. You could do it, I, I think, and this is probably pejorative, but in the way that it was practiced as I was growing up, just kind of as a ritualistic thing, something we have to do, you know, uh, check communion, check worship, you know, and more of a checkbox kind of a thing versus an entering into communion with the Lord. And during this uh, COVID-19 season, I still break bread with the people. Uh, we've asked them to get uh, juice in their homes, unleavened bread with a matzo cracker. Uh, we have a lot of Afghans in our area, uh, the non-bread, you know, tortilla chips are unleavened. And so uh, they can get their tortilla chips or their matzah or their uh, non-bread. And uh, we still celebrate every week at the end of communion, at, at the end of the sermon, even as we live stream. We want to bring this picture of our Lord and Jesus uh, before them. Take that picture out of our wallet and say, look, and have our souls, our mind, and our emotions and our will stirred after the heart of Christ. Well done, well done. We've been speaking with Pastor Jeremy Foster of Calvary Chapel in the Ozarks in northwest Arkansas and Pastor Tim Brown of Calvary Chapel Fremont in the Bay Area of California. And to access some of Pastor Jeremy's resources, you can go to calvaryozarks.org, Calvary ozarks.org and for pastor tim brown his resources can be found through calvaryfremont.org calvaryfremont.org again thanks tim and jeremy for joining us on strength for today's pastor it's been a great blessing thank you bill thank you jeremy yeah yeah same to you guys thanks for having me what a real treat this has been well this has been a great discussion Churches to be truly one have to unite around communion, get to reunite around communion and its meaning, and also will enjoy much benefit 
if they emails together as a body. So thankful for this conversation with Tim Brown and Jeremy Foster. But before we sign off, may I encourage you to visit our website at poimanministries.com. You're going to find many of our previous podcasts recorded with you, the pastor, in mind. Also, you'll find great encouragement and support for your ministry. Once again, our web address is poimanministries.com. And I so look forward to our next podcast connection here on Strength for Today's Pastor. And so from all the staff and pastors here at Poyman Ministries, we wish God's very best upon you and upon your ministries. So long until next week. Strength for Today's Pastor is sponsored by Poyman Ministries. You can find us at poymanministries.com. That's spelled P-O-I-M-E-N ministries.com. If something in today's program prompts a question or comment, or if you have a topic idea for a future episode, just shoot us an email at strongerpastors at gmail.com. That's strongerpastors at gmail.com. May the Lord bless you as you serve Him, His pastors, and His church.